book of Acts is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, uh, most all the verses are going to be on the screen. Um, but anyway, and if you need a Bible, we'd love to give you one after service uh, for your very own. All right, so here's what we're going to do. When you hear the word church, I don't know what you think of, but I would pretty much rest assured that it's going to be different than it was for somebody in the first century. When we hear the word church, what we typically think of is a place, all right? Well, that's, that's a church that I go to, or that's, that's where I go, or here's the address. I remember, uh, I didn't grow up in church, so I got to figure out if I, do, I did this thing right. Remember that little deal they would go, uh, what is this like? Some, some of y'all help me here. Like, this is a church. Remember how it goes? This is the church. This is the steeple. Open up the doors. <laughs> And there are all the people. It's like, that's, that's church. That's church, all right? Believe it or not, believe it or not, that is uh, not at all what they would have thought about, at least initially uh, back then. Uh, one of the two things that, that were paramount or that were so indicative of the early church, and that's what the book of Acts is. The book of Acts is the movement of how did Christianity spread like just wild fire, and then what we're going to see is how does that apply to us right now. But two things that they had for sure is, number one, they had a, it was built on, it had a foundation, a very strong conviction of that, you know what, that, that Jesus Christ came as the sinless Son of God, died as a substitute for sinners, and then rose from the grave, proving he was who he says he was, inviting all men and women everywhere to repent and to follow him. That was a strong conviction. Like, why did they have that? We'll see that in a second. The second thing that you see that they had is they, had, they were built, they gathered around a mission. They gathered around some marching orders that they actually were told to do, and they did make a difference. They made a massive difference. A bunch of ordinary, non-influential, primarily blue-collar people a long time ago. The text we're in, we're going to look at, there's like only 120 of them at that point, became the greatest movement the world has ever seen. Some 4 billion people today came from these 120 people. They say, you know what, I'm going to name Jesus uh, as my Savior. So uh, here's where, here's where we're kind of going to go. The danger of a church and the danger of any church at any age is to become less of a movement, less of a movement, more of an institution, less of being uh, mission-minded and more maintenance-minded. How do we just keep what we have? And build more churches specifically. We're going to kind of really drive down for our church here in about 20 minutes or so. The big danger is when a church has had some degree of quote-unquote success or growth or gets big, the easiest thing, the most natural thing, there's some natural inertia that sometimes takes place because what happens is you go from mission-focused to you go to maintenance-focused. How do we just kind of keep this thing going? And we do not want to do that. So there's two areas of I guess, questions for us today. The first one is, is kind of corporately, congregationally. How do we either stay or at least or accelerate as a movement? How do we get back on and make sure we're on mission and not fall into maintenance mode? Or even worse, how do, how do we avoid becoming a place that people just attend for some religious services? That's kind of big picture. But individually, question that you want to ask, the question we want to be able to answer and that you want to be able to ask yourself is, is the church a place you simply attend or is it a movement that you are personally involved in? All right, so again, this is the 11 o'clock service. This one's not the one that goes out to the other campus and so forth. So let me just talk about just, just right here in this room. You, the, the problem, the, the temptation when you're part of something where you got a lot of people is this, is you can see a lot of stuff happening and you see all these baptisms and you can see these video testimonies and you can see all of that and you can kind of feel like, you know, hey, I'm kind of part of it because I attend and yet you're not personally part of it. 
You don't know the names. You don't know the stories. You're not part of that. And so what you want to ask is, is this something I'm personally a part of? Am I personally participating on the call that God has given me on my life? And it's exciting, all right? Every poll, every survey that is ever asked of anybody, any age group, whether it be Gen Z, whether it be millennials, whether it be senior adults, doesn't matter where you go, every survey that says, man, what do you want from your life? What do you want out of your life? Two of them are always right up at the top. Uh, one of them is like, I want to know my purpose. I want to know my purpose. Why am I here? Why am I here? All right, somebody said the two great moments in a person's life are the moment that they were born and then the moment they realize why they were born. That's what people want to know. Why am I here? What's my purpose? Okay. The second thing that people are always wanting to know, and we think it's kind of a new thing, but it's not. I've talked to so many businessmen and businesswomen that hit that 55 or 58 range, and they have made all this successful stuff, and they're like, bottom line, bottom line, I don't want to go to my grave without knowing that I've made a tangible difference in this world. Now, I mean, it's always at the top of the list for millennials, always the top of the list for certain generations, but they want to know, am I making a difference? And what better group of people could we learn from than, again, a group of people who 2,000 years ago started off small, no influence, no money. The money they did have was taken from them when they became Christ followers. No, they didn't have any members of Congress influencing them and lobbying for them. They didn't have any of that stuff, and yet they were part of the biggest movement in history. So how do we learn from them? Um, here's what we got to do. we gotta, uh, we got to set it up for a second. One last thing about Acts. The book of Acts is the history of the early church. Now, two types of people study history. Uh, scholars study history and soldiers study history. They study it for different purposes. Scholars study history for information. I want to know what happened. We want to be scholarly, but that's not the way we're studying this book, all right? We're going to study it as soldiers. Soldiers look at history, not just for history's sake. They look at history to try to figure out this is what happened then, but this is what we're going to learn from and change now. So we want to know, okay, what did God do then? But bigger than that, we want to know what does God want to do with us now congregationally? What does God want to do with you personally, individually? To do that, we've got to set up a little bit of uh, scaffolding and context, if you will. The first three verses... Give us some context. i got to take about five minutes to set that up. You don't just crank open your Bible and kind of just jump into different things. you got to figure out what's going on, what's happening, what's, what's, the, what's the story, what's the background here, uh, particularly when you come across a familiar verse like one of the verses is today. And uh, as I set this up, then we'll go to a couple of action points we need to take, and then we're going to actually try to take one of those. So let me take about five or six minutes for this one. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, and every single, every single word in here means something. I don't want to belabor it, but let me, let, me, let me camp out here for a second. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Let me take a couple of different phrases in here. He says in the first book. In the first book, his reference here is to the book in the Bible called the Gospel of Luke. Okay, Luke wrote, Luke is the author of both Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts. Think of them as one book in two different parts, all right? He's the author of both of them. The book of Luke is the one that he talks about, this is what Jesus began to do, and this is what he began to teach, all right? So when you look at the Gospels, it's what did Jesus do, all right? A lot of people like what Jesus did. They're like, hey, he healed people. He was nice to people. He preached sermons. He, he, was, he hugged the children. We like that. Sometimes the friction starts when you look at what Jesus said. I am God. I am creator. I am judge. I am savior. This is what I am, all right? So you got both and. That's referring to the Gospel of Luke. And uh, by the way, Luke is, uh, 
a little bit of background. Luke was a physician by trade. He was probably semi-affluent. You know, typically it's told that all the early Christians were poor. Not all of them. Some of them were somewhat affluent, but but for sure, the vast majority were fairly not well off, fairly poor. Luke was more educated than most. He writes in a very scholarly manner, right? uh, People who study the languages are like, man, he's very precise. He's sort of like an investigative reporter. He's like, I want to do all my facts right, perfectly. But here's what he writes to. He writes Luke. The immediate audience in Luke and in Acts is this guy named Theophilus. Now, there's a bunch of different ideas about who Theophilus was, right? Some people say he was the guy that funded the whole missionary journeys. Some people say he was some Roman magistrate who came to Christ. Probably the best bet right there. Other people say he was a skeptic. But uh, what we do know is what his name means, all right? You can even see it here in the word, all right? If you cut this word in half right there, theo, theo is the Greek word for God, all right? Theo, theology, all right? So, and then the, the word over here, Phyllis right here is where we get our word Philadelphia from. So you put them together, it means lover of God. So above anything else, we know that he is a lover of God. He uses this description to say somebody who has turned from their sin, embraced Christ by faith, and he is a lover of God. Now, before we move on, that's a great little parking spot right there. Because whatever else you think about your purpose in life, your purpose is to love God, to be a lover of God. All the other 65 books of the Bible are teaching you, how do I love God? When you get up tomorrow morning, you're like, you know what? I might be going to work at the hospital or at the school or I have the day off because it's a holiday weekend or whatever. It's like, you know what? Before anything else, I'm a lover of God. You're like, no, no, no. I'm an electrical engineer. I'm a teacher. That is not your purpose. That is your role. Your purpose, your purpose is to love God. That's your purpose. Your role then is what? I'm a teacher. I'm a nuclear engineer. I'm an electrical engineer. I'm a maintenance engineer. I'm whatever you are. That's your role. And by the way, once you see yourself spiritually instead of vocationally, once you see your identity spiritually, then you know what? I'm a son or daughter of Almighty God. That's who I am. I'm a lover of God. That's my purpose, right? That's my primary purpose. Then all of a sudden, by the way, you see your vocation differently. You're like, I'm not going to some stinking job. You're like, I'm a missionary going to the platform that God has graciously given me. So here's what he said. He said, I I have dealt with all that Jesus began, began, began to do and teach. The idea is continuation. By the way, it's not the idea that, okay, in the book of Luke, Jesus works, and then in the book of Acts, the church works. That's not the idea. Jesus is working in both books, okay? In the book of Luke, he is working in his incarnational form, in his body, in the flesh. He's here for three and a half years, ministering, working, or 33 and a half years, he's working. And so the idea is in the book of Acts, he's still working. He's inviting his church to join him and work through the church, all right? The church isn't working for Jesus. Jesus is working through the church. All right, that's verse one. Don't panic. We're not spending that much time on every verse, all right? Until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And then verse 3. People are like, what did he talk about with the apostles from the time when he came up out of the grave until the time he ascended into heaven? That's like 40 days. What did they do? What did they talk about? It actually tells us right here. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. We're going to come back to that. I thank God that Luke starts off He starts off this whole history by saying you do not have to check your intellect at the door to be a follower of Jesus, all right? It is a reasonable faith. There's some proofs. There's evidence that you and I should gather. 
Now, we don't have time to drill down here, but if you hadn't read any of the books by a guy named Lee Strobel, I would encourage you to grab one. Pick whatever one. All right, there's one called The Case for Faith, one called The Case for Christ, one called The Case for Easter. All this stuff is just basically here is the logical evidence, all right? You don't have to sit there and go, I'm stupid. I'm just going to ignore what I know to be. That's not the Christian faith. It's based on proofs. And so he did that with them, appearing to them during 40 days. And what did he speak about? He spoke about the kingdom. He spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God, is a, it's also one of those ones that gets kind of uh, pushed around a little bit. And it's like, what is that? What is that? Kingdom of God is used, a, it's both now and not yet. All right? So think about the kingdom of God. It is now. Jesus has come. He says, listen, the kingdom of God is among you. It is now, but it's not yet. All right? Sometimes people get confused. They're like, if the kingdom of God is now, how come I got cancer? How come I'm suffering? How come I lost my job? Because there's also a not yet. This isn't heaven, all right? This is not heaven, all right? If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, this right now is as close to hell as you will ever get. If you are not a follower of Jesus and never want to become one, then this is as close to heaven as you will ever get. But when we talk about the kingdom of God, it's both now and not yet. And so we talked about that with him for a long, 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 long time. But here's what I got you, here's what's crystal clear in here is this early church, they definitely believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus had risen from the dead. And some of them believed against their will. They didn't want a Messiah who was going to hang shamefully on a cross. They wanted somebody who was going to come and fry all of the enemies of Israel. That was their idea. That was what they thought. And so when this happened, it's like when they saw that he came up out of the grave, all the stuff that he had said all of a sudden made sense. Now listen to me, one last thing. It has puzzled historians for years. How come Christianity spread amazingly fast in those early days in particular? In the early days in particular, they just were not people of, again, they weren't people of influence. They weren't people of money. It was 400 years before anybody picked up a sword to quote unquote defend the Christian faith. They were a fairly small people, all those things. But what happened is they produced communities unlike anything anybody had ever seen. I mean, for example, they were, they were, so, they were so forgiving. Even the, there were a lot of persecuted groups back then, but only Christians refused to fight back. They prayed for the forgiveness of their captors. They went joyfully to their executions. They welcomed the outcasts. They were the first multiracial community in history. You understand that? They were the first one that says, like, listen, everybody's been made in the image of God. And so they had different people from all different walks of life. They had Jews, Gentiles, rich, poor, masters, servants, men, women. It's like that's all, that nobody had seen something like that before. Even in extra biblical material, you can read tons of different primary sources about how pagan people, emperors, looked at this little group and like, they are frustrating me. I don't like them, but I can't ignore them. There's a, one guy, uh, uh, Julian. He was a Roman emperor in like 380 A.D. or so. I was actually looking at, you can, go on, you can look at the primary source. He's writing this letter to one of his commandants or whatever, and he's so frustrated. He's like, these atheists, now, again, he's referring to the Christians as atheists because he was like a Roman emperor, and you got to believe in all these gods and Zeus and all this stuff, so stick with the language. He's like, these, these, these Galileans, they're so frustrating. And what are they frustrating him about? They're frustrating him about because of how distinguishable they were from his citizens they're like, they take care of the orphans. They're kind to the people that are not kind to them. They take care of the sick. In one place, he actually says, they bring in the orphans that we have discarded. 
It's like, I can't get away from them. Can't explain them, but can't get away from them. One Yale professor, you've never heard me quote a Yale professor, I don't think ever, but one Yale professor, he said this, quote, the more one examines the various factors which seem to account for the extraordinary victory of Christianity, the more one is driven to search for a cause underlying them all. It is clear that at the very beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast, and this is his words, a vast release of energy virtually unequaled in history. Nothing else could explain the surge of the early Christian movement. But then he ends it with this way. He says, but before I'm a historian, I'm a human. How can I close my eyes to the obvious explanation that something supernatural happened? It's like, man, I can't explain it. The question again that I'm going to ask you is this. The question again is, have you, are we personally a movement? And then secondly, are you personally part of that movement? And so I'm going to go through the last few verses and I'm going to ask you a couple of more questions, all right? And the first one is this. The first one you're going to, well, I'm just going to read the verse and then you guys can kind of get nervous a little bit. All right, verse four. Um, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. That's where they were, okay? Here they are. They're at Jerusalem. Jesus is raised from the dead. He tells them, don't leave Jerusalem. Believe it or not, they don't leave Jerusalem. Why? Because when somebody is risen from the dead and gives you a command, you do what that guy says. And so they actually don't do that, but they want to. They're like, we want to go out there. This is the greatest news in human history. You just rose from the dead. All the stuff you said about yourself is true. We want to go tell. We got loved ones. We got family. We want to go out there. And he says, don't do it yet. He says, wait for the promise of the Father. And by the way, it's going to be like 10 days before this takes place. But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. All right, a couple more verses. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then verse 8, and part of it, he refers to it again. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So here's the question. Here's the question. Let's unpack it. Okay. They were empowered for the mission. Are you? They were empowered for the mission. Are you? So let me drill down. Let me press in a little bit on that. Verse 4 says, he says to wait. Everything in them wanted to go to a conference, go preach messages, go do something. But he says you wait because if you don't wait and you don't get empowered, you're going to go out there and mess it up. True confessions. About two months ago, I did a little study of the way Jesus was doing his ministry. And I'd always thought as the second person of the Godhead, the son of God, he just had all the empowerment that he needed. But as you look through the Gospels, what you see repeatedly over and over and over again is it says that he did ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit. For example, it says that he was led by the Spirit, he was empowered by the Spirit, he was filled with the Spirit, he endured suffering through the power of the Spirit, he prayed in the Spirit, he trained his disciples and his leaders by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in every chapter in Acts, that is what you see. Now, okay, okay the doors are locked, you can't get out. Um, so I know when you start talking about the Holy Spirit, people get kind of, people get kind of crazy. People get kind of nervous. You're like, okay, are you going to bring the snakes out? What is, what's going on? I mean, you don't talk about It's interesting when you get, Christians get very nervous about the Holy Spirit. Now, I understand why. Number one, he's invisible. So it's like, that's kind of different. Okay, number one, he's, that's different. And number two, you've probably seen some uh, abuses, some excesses, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. So let me be clear as we start. We're not talking about crazy. We're not talking about crazy stuff. All right, 
relax, all right? I'm not going to be passing out tambourines with ribbons on it and asking you to run around here. We're not doing that. Okay, all right? Lori is not going to get like big Texas hair and put her makeup on like a, you know, she was in some paintball war. That's not, that's not going to happen, all right? We're not changing the name of the church to like River of Fire. We're not, we're not doing that, all right? So we're not talking about that. But the question still remains. As you sit in church today, are you right now, just some questions. Are you empowered? Would you say, man, my life is empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. My kids would say, you know what? That's what my dad looks like, man. He looks like a person who does stuff that's not natural. Do you exhibit consistently the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Yeah, that's what my mom looks like. She's always like that. Do you know what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to fellowship with the Spirit? And so if you don't have the Holy Spirit, Christianity is just a set of beliefs to consent to or a lifestyle to follow. But with the Spirit of God, it is an interaction with the living God. If, if, I, had, I had the privilege this week. Uh, I was in a small meeting, and one of the guys that led a group or talked to us for about 30, 45 minutes is a guy named Jim Simbola, who's a pastor at Brooklyn Tabernacle, up obviously in Brooklyn, New York. And man, just written some great books on both prayer and on the Holy Spirit. And it was so, it was so very, very convicting because what we, what we talked about is the whole book of Acts is about the church being alive and directed by the Holy Spirit. In other words, we have no chance of doing mission at all unless the Holy Spirit is leading us and guiding us individually and as a church. What's our whole deal? Our whole deal is about how do we make disciples of Jesus, correct? All right, if you're a member here, you need to be able to say, you know what, that's what we're about. We're here to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus. We've talked about that for 10 years. That's what we're about, making disciples, making disciples, making disciples. That's a good thing. That's a great thing. That's a God thing. But listen to this. Think about this. Jesus spent three and a half years with 12 men discipling those 12 men. This is Jesus Christ being with, teaching, preaching, motivating, training. He does that for three and a half years. And then they end up having their exam when he's there getting tried and then put on a cross. And how do they do on their test? They fail miserably. They run away. They deny him. They're like, I'm out of here. So don't miss it. Jesus trains people for three and a half years and they fail the test. The only time they change, they change when they see that he is raised from the dead and they change when the spirit of God has come onto their life. Now, we don't have time to drill down into the theology of the Holy Spirit. The theology of the Holy Spirit in a nutshell would be the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. One God, three distinct persons. That person of the Holy Spirit comes to live inside and empower the believer as soon as they embrace Christ by repentance and faith. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit said would come upon somebody for a particular task. In the New Testament, it says, guess what? He lives on the inside of you. That's why Paul would say your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So you don't get the Holy Spirit all different times. You, you and I get filled by the Spirit. We can grieve the Spirit. We can. The Bible says we can grieve him. When, you, when he says don't do that and we do it, we grieve him. Okay. You can quench him when he says, I want you to go do that. Go talk to that guy. Go do this. Go preach that sermon. Like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't do it. Then we quench him. One is we do something we should, and the other one is we don't do something that we should. It's not, he's not an it. He is a he. Before you sit there and go, well, it's, it's not all about the Holy Spirit. Correct. Correct. It is not. 
Okay? John 16, 14, clearly Jesus says, He, the Holy Spirit, He will glorify me. The Holy Spirit's ministry is to put a spotlight on Jesus. That is His ministry. So your church doesn't be talking about the Holy Spirit all the time. If it's talking about the Holy Spirit all the time and not Jesus all the time, the roles have been reversed. Because Jesus said the Holy Spirit is a spotlight ministry. It's to like shine the spotlight on Jesus. And so what do we want to talk about as a church all the time? Just real quickly. What do we want to talk about all the time as a church? Jesus. All right, Jesus, okay? That's why it's we are the movement. It's not like, hey, we're built more. That's not it. No, no, that's not it. We want to be a Jesus church. That's what we're about. Like what else? That's what we're about. And so it's about the Holy Spirit. Here's, here's the idea. I know some of you are going to write me a note and say, well, I, you know, I, 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 I tell you what, I read the book of Acts and it's, you know, kind of makes me nervous and it makes me nervous too. You know what makes me nervous? Because I see a lot of stuff in there that I don't see in my own life. That's what makes me nervous. I see a lot of stuff in there. It's like, man, that doesn't look like the way I live. Now, granted, some of the book of Acts is transitional in nature. I understand that. The hard part, not the hard part, but the part that you got to people go back and forth with, and it, there's a merit to it, is, is this part of the book of Acts descriptive or prescriptive? Descriptive means is it describing how God worked or is it prescribing how God wants to work now in his church? And the answer to that question would be yes, it is. Yes, both. There's some things that are unique to the book of Acts. I mean, some of y'all better hope so. You better hope so. Don't look at me like that. All right? Uh, some of you better like, oh, I, I want the whole thing. I want the, you really want Acts chapter 5? You want Acts chapter 5? Acts chapter 5 is the guys lied about their offering and God killed them. All right, you want that? Half of you guys didn't put Jack in the offering plate. You want God to just kill you right now? Like, I don't like that part. Let's cut that, well, let's cut that part out. There's another part I don't like either. It's like, well, that's not that I don't like, but Peter's walking along and anything that, anybody that even gets in his shadow gets healed. Here's a confession. I have never walked through Biltmore Park going to some movie. Somebody gets in my shadow and he gets healed of cancer. Never happened before. Never happened. Don't look for that to happen tomorrow. Some of it is descriptive. Some of it is prescriptive. But here's the question. As you pursue God's mission in your life, do you live with a sense of dependence on the Holy Spirit? Do you really believe that you can do nothing without him? Pastors, you believe that? Parents, you believe that? Spouses, you believe that? As a friend? As a witness? Here's what, here's what I just jotted down. The book of Acts tells the amazing story of a group of unqualified, mostly blue-collar workers filled with the Holy Spirit can turn a world upside down. Throughout the book, he guides, the Holy Spirit guides, he speaks, he moves. The disciples are basically just kind of going, and half the time they argue. They argue. They're like, no, I want to go over here. And it's like, God's got to go, no, over here. Don't go over there. Remember those scenes where Paul, like, I want to go preach the gospel. It's like, not there. I want to go preach the gospel. Not there. He says he closed the door. Why? Because in God's sovereignty, it's like, I'm going to get you over here. It's called the Macedonian call. That means that, you know what, there's some good things that aren't necessarily God things. Bottom line, if we don't have the Holy Spirit, if we're not depending on him both personally and as a church, man, we don't, all we got is Old Testament Christianity. All right, we just got a bunch of laws in Jesus. That's all we got. But that's not all we got. What he says is, listen, it's not just about looking at a bunch of laws and going to eat a Cracker Barrel. That's not what it's all about, okay? It's about, all right, a living, breathing relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit. So here's a, uh, let me look at you like, what does that, what does that mean in, in real life? Okay. Let's look at these next few verses, and then we're going to kind of see what it looks like. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Again, they're thinking kingdom, like as in squash the enemies kingdom, you know, 
Verse 7. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or season the Father's fixed by his own authority. So again, if you get some crazy preacher up here going, hey, I did the math, you know, I did the math, and in my quiet time, God showed me he's coming like in 2000. What are we in now? 2009. He's coming like in 2021 on April the 14th, all right? Please do not. I thought if God was actually coming on that date, I don't think, I think God would actually change his plans just to show up a preacher who dared say, this is the date I'm coming in on. It's like, I'm not going to do it just to not give you any glory, okay? So somebody says that, say, not happening. Here's what he says, though. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. The word witnesses here is the same word we get our word. Wait for it. It's the same word for martyr. Martyr, like somebody killed for their faith. Now, I know we don't think about that a bunch here. It would do all of us a world of good just to read some accounts. I was reading an account earlier this week about some of our brothers and sisters in North Korea. All right, there's one young lady. She was actually trying to escape to China. She got caught. She got put back in there. She's tortured. They shaved her entire body. They make fun of her. They, they beat her. Why? 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 Why are they doing that? One reason, because of her faith in Christ. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's where they were. In all Judea, that's kind of expanding like a concentric circle. Samaria, that's going a little bit further out. And then it says to the uttermost parts of the world, that would be like, uh, that would be like Flat Rock, okay? That would be Flat Rock. That would be, uh, that would be Asheville, okay? That, back then, these dudes hadn't even been 50 miles from their home. They didn't know anything about us. And so here's the question. Second question, then we're kind of the last one. They embrace the mission, have you? Just ask yourself, I'm not gonna, we're not going to have a test today, but in all seriousness, they embrace the message, have you? Now, as a church, understand that verse 8 is the outline of the book. Okay, Jerusalem, you know what that is? That's for us, that's Western North Carolina. Okay, you start there, you start locally. That's not where you end, but that is where you start. If you look at this, basically, it's you start locally, you move regionally, you go nationally, and you serve globally is one way to put it. So what, what does it look like for us right now? Right now, it's like right now, our Jerusalem is Western North Carolina. What is our Judea? That would, might be like the Atlanta church plant uh, that we did. That might be like the Charlotte church plant that we did. What's the Samaria? It's kind of going out further. What does that look like? That looks like the Brooklyn church plant that we're doing with Summit Church next year, okay? By the way, I got a great, actually this fall, got a great chance this past week to meet the guy that Summit trained up, that we just kind of get to come alongside and help finance and help make that great, strong, strong Probably the most impressive church planter that I've seen. Very mature, great family, bought in. And man, if you just don't think, you know, there's 16 million Americans that don't know one Christian. We forget about that here in the Bible Belt. Go to New York City sometime, you're just walking around. It's like, man, there's not like a single Christian around here. 16 million don't even know one Christian. And so in Brooklyn, that's definitely the case. And then you go a little bit further, uttermost parts of the world. What does that look like for us? That looks like planning child development centers in Ecuador with compassion. That looks like some of the people that are leaving to go to the Nepal area. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to take about five minutes, and I want, to, I want us to see some of you don't, some of you don't know the history, and you go over it a little bit in starting point, but here's a quick synopsis. The church right now that you're sitting in, technically, historically, is actually 130 plus years old. 130 plus years old. About 30 years ago or so, and people are like, why do you call it Biltmore Church? Why do you call it Biltmore? That's been the name for a long, 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 long time. The primary reason is, is the initial grounds or the initial plant was actually down by the gates at the Biltmore Estate, kind of where Friday's is uh, right in there, okay? 
And then it's moved a bunch of times, came out here to Arden 2000, uh, Easter of 2000. But for 130 years, had some good seasons and some tough seasons, good seasons and some tough seasons. 30 years ago was a very difficult season. It was down to about 200 people. If you'd have continued on that trajectory, it would have been just like the six or 7,000 churches that close their doors every single year in the West right now. They estimate that 55,000 churches will close their doors in the West in the next seven years on our watch. That's what's going to happen. Are we planting churches? Yes, we plant, but we're not even remotely keeping up with the population. We're barely keeping up with how many are closing all the time. And so when you look at this, what, what, what would that look like? 30 years ago, the church here, this, our church was broken. They were broken of their sin. They were broken of their selfishness. God had convicted them of so many different things. And they sit there and about 60 of them on a gym floor over there on Hendersonville Road cried out to God. And not that the last 30 have been all peaches and cream, but it has been an amazing journey over the last 30 years. But here's the problem. So in some cases we are, while 130 years old, in some cases we're 30, and in some cases we're basically two generations. And what happens is, and this happens all over the time, when a church has some effectiveness, it is so easy for a church like ours to come across some natural inertia, to just kind of take our eyes off the ball, protect what we have been given, go from uh, mission to maintenance. So let me give you a couple of warning signs for us just to make sure that you and this can be a big picture or this can be you. All right, so let's just let's, let's kind of compare and contrast a mission church, this is the good one, and a maintenance church, that's the bad one. Maintenance church versus a mission church. We want to be this one, okay? Mission church. Mission church does whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Well, you know, hey, whatever it takes, let's go do it. And you got 100, 200 people. It's like, yeah, let's just do it. We got to do it. We got to do it. It's like, whatever it takes, sure, I'll cut the grass. Sure, I'll change the diapers. Sure, whatever, whatever it takes. Maintenance church, yeah, I'll do it if I'm asked. Somebody asked me, eh, if you twist my arm, if Mr. Bill calls me long enough time or Miss Jenny calls me enough time, okay, I'll do my once a month in the nursery if you really just to get you off my back. Okay, that's maintenance church, mission church. Mission church actually expects to have personal sacrifice. Of course I would. I mean, if I don't make the coffee, who's going to make the coffee? If I don't contribute, who's going to contribute? If I don't go work downtown at the mission, who from our class is going to go work downtown for the mission? They expect it. Of course they expect it. But this one is uh, maintenance churches. I expect personal comfort. Who moved the slide from the children's area? My last church in Michigan, we had a slide. And little boo-boo got the slide down the slide right into my arms. Where is that? I'm going to a dip. Bye, okay, bye. We ain't going to no slide in the children's area. Not doing that, all right? But it's the idea of personal comfort. Where are the pads on these chairs? All right? I know we got here at 1120. I understand we had to sit in the way, way back, but listen, where are the pads on these chairs? That is maintenance church. I'm just going to kind of open it all up today. All right, mission church, all right? Mission church sees what could be and trusts God. Man, sees what could be. Imagine being those 60 people on a Wednesday night 30 years ago. You think they could have seen what God's done over the last 30 years? I don't know if they could. Maybe some of them could. But a mission church is like, listen, look what God could do. And I know it's nerve-wracking, and I know it takes all of us, but man, it's, look what God could do. Maintenance church, now that you have something to protect, you see what you have, but you protect it. Huh? Let's not kind of get out on the limb there. What happens if that doesn't work out? What happens if the stock market crashes? What happened? You know, what? Let's not do that. Let's go. We're good right now. 
Why mess up with a good thing? That's maintenance church. Here's one that's mission church. The leaders have spiritual vitality and spiritual influence. The connect group teachers, the deacons, the, the leadership team, they have spiritual vitality. They walk with Jesus. They walk with Jesus. They love Jesus. That's their influence. Their influence is not because they got a bunch of coin. It's not because they got a great social status. It's not because they belong to such and such country club. They are leaders because people look at them and say, that guy's filled with the Holy Spirit. That guy loves Jesus. She is an awesome lover of God right there. That's why they're leaders. But maintenance church, maintenance church has a lot of respect. They've got to make sure they take care of, okay? Got to make sure they look good. And so what happens is the leaders have historical vitality. Back in the day, 25 years ago, I taught a Sunday school class. 20 years ago, I was mayor. Man, I hope the mayor isn't here. I'm sorry. I'm just saying, I was a, you ought to be one of your leaders. Their influence is primarily monetary and social influence. Hey, I ought to be on a leadership team because I got some, I got some jack and I'm president of such and such. I'm senior vice president of Alpha Gamma Lambda, whatever, who cares? That's what, that's what I, I should be on that leadership team. That is a maintenance church, a couple more. Mission church, man, sees the problem. Hey, we all got problems, and they seek a solution. Man, they seek a solution. Well, we got no, got, got no chairs. We got to bring in some chairs. Hey, isn't this a great problem, preacher? That's awesome. Maintenance church sees the problem, same problems, every church has problems, sees the problem and they complain. Stinking, 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 volume too high. Can't believe we didn't sing this song. You imagine how many, how many, how many renditions of that song did we do? It's too cold. It's too hot. I don't like my connect group. They're weird. I don't like the preacher because he screams at us. I don't like whatever. Okay, that's what happens. Sees problems and just wah, 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 wah. Okay, um, sorry. Just, hey, listen. All right. Here, here's the key. Here's the key. Here's the key. We'll, talk, we'll look at this in a later week. They're unified. A, a mission church, it's not that they're uniform. They're not. It's not like a unified church. It's a bunch of all white people, a bunch of white middle-aged well-to-do, grew up in church people. That's not, a, uniformity is not the New Testament church. It's not uniformity. It's not everybody the same at all. The unity, though, is built around the fact that the main thing is the main thing, all right? The main person is Jesus, and the main thing is the gospel, okay? And the gospel is what we are, we're holding, if we're going to argue about anything, we're going to argue about holding on to the gospel message, Okay? Here's the way we say it. We married, we are married to the message. We are married to the message. You're like, I'm just here. I'm just, what are you all about? We're married to the gospel message. All right. We are dog, we are bulldogmatic about the gospel message. All right. Unapologetic. That's what we're we're unapologetic about the book right here. We're not apologizing. That's who we are. Okay. So, so what happens is, um, but, and so that's where the unity comes from. That's where you got people over here and you like. I don't even mind looking at anybody in particular. You got some PhDs over here, and you got some, you got, uh, you know, you got, you got white people over here, and you got, uh, uh, what else? You got probably some uh, uh, pretty nice clothes over here, too. As a matter of fact, I was like, it's pretty, pretty sweet over here. And then over here, you got, you got somebody that's totally, totally different. And what's the unity? 
The unity is, is, is not because you got the same background, the same skin color, the same upbringing, not even the same age spiritually, but what it is, it's the fact you're unified around a gospel message that, you know what, we are all sinners by the grace of God. Jesus has saved me by his grace, convicted me, brought me to his son. But what happens at a maintenance church? A maintenance church is unified around the methods. So we, we, we're not changing. We've done music this way before. We're always going to do music this way. That's the way we're going to do it. That's the music we do. That's the structure we do. Those are the pie. Listen, listen. I had a church say, we will never do music like you. Never. I'm not saying our music is, I'm not saying that ours is the only way. It's, it's not, all right? I'm just saying, the, the, the thing was, we would rather die than do music like that. Be careful what you say never to, all right? Be careful what you say never to. And so church, here's what we want to do. We want to be a mission church, mission-minded church. That means you. So what does that mean? It means you plug into a church first, you know, plug into a church. If this is not, if this is not where the best place for you is, find, there's some great churches around here. We'll recommend some to you. All right, the ones that teach the Bible, they're good, solid Bible churches. So plug into those. But understand God's plan A is the church. It is. He gives the mission in Acts 1, and he plants the church in Acts 2 and Acts 3. It's the only organism that he said, that's what I died for. You can't say there was a Newsweek magazine that basically it had Jesus in there, and he looked like, kind of like a hipster, but he had a crown of thorns uh, on his head. This is Newsweek from like, you know, that great, awesome newspaper or just magazine. Okay, I'll just leave it at that. The headline said this, uh, forget the church, forget the church, follow Jesus. Forget the church and follow Jesus. Forget the church. Did Jesus give that option? Let me just say again, he did not. He did not. Nine out of 10 times when the word church is used in the Bible, it's about a local visible church with a bunch of messed up people in there. You might as well say, I like you, but I don't like your bride. You can't say that because Jesus says that bride, that is the church. That is who I died for. He loves the church. He defends the church. He died for the church. And you're like, well, uh, I don't, I don't uh, there's a bunch of hypocrites in the church. And there's a bunch of different things, you know, about the people say, and I don't want to spend all our time, but I can see why people are frustrated with the church uh, people are, div- churches are divided. They can't get along. They argue. They spend time navel gazing at theological issues that don't make a hill of beans when it actually comes to actually discipling people. They have no impact on their community or the, the tried and true one is there's just a bunch of hypocrites in that church. Um, and to some degree, I would just say this about that. Uh, are there hypocrites in the church? What's the, what's the answer to that? Yes, there are. There are there are some hypocrites in the church. I would say a few. I would say not as many as people actually think, because here's what a hypocrite is. Hypocrites are people who pretend to be something that they're not. Okay, from where I sit, my vantage point, right up here, there aren't all that many hypocrites in church today. Here's what the problem is. I think the problem is that when the people say hypocrites, what they really mean is sinners. And the church is full of sinners. And their church is full of sinners who are Christ followers. But a Christ follower who's not a hypocrite, when they sin, when she sins, they embrace Jesus, they embrace the gospel, they're convicted, and they run back and say, God, help me to do better this next time. That's not a hypocrite, that's a human, all right? That's all that is. So, uh, and I would say this, uh, plug into a small group. I don't care if your church runs 200 or runs 2,000 or runs 10,000, all right? Plug into a small group. Um, 
Church, let me be clear, we are willing to grow big. People are like, why are you all doing more campuses? Why are you doing? We're willing to grow big throughout history. When the church has been a movement, they have gotten big. You see here in the next chapter, you see 3,000 people, right? Immediately get, get saved, get to be part of a church. You see a chapter later, you see 5,000 people get saved. So again, big churches aren't good, small churches aren't bad. Big churches aren't bad and small churches aren't good. It's not a matter of big or small. What you do see is you see healthy. Healthy things tend to grow unless you're living like out in Blue Grove, Texas, where you got 71 people as a total population. That's not Western North Carolina's problem. All right? Can't remember if I said this in the first service or not, but if I if I said it in this service, just forgive me for a second for a senior moment. All right. So here's the here's the idea. We're not living, we're not living, we're not, here's what, okay, guys. Okay, we've been here 10 years. Okay. What happens is people get. We get upset because our town is changing. And I don't like the way the town is changing. And all these apartments are going up. And these trees are getting cut down. And the parkway's not really fast. And these people from Florida are moving up here and they only drive 25 miles an hour. I understand all of that. Listen, but here's the If you're a Christ follower and you're a missionary, you're not sitting here complaining about all these people coming in here. If you're a missionary, you're like, praise God, he's bringing the world right to my doorstep. I don't have to get on a plane and go to Ecuador. I don't have to get on a plane and go to Nepal. All I got to do is go out my front door, all right? My front door, he's bringing it right there. All right, so again, I'm not saying it. By the way, if you're a Florida driver, please drive faster, okay? Please drive faster. Seriously. Can we just get a witness on that, all right? Just please drive faster, all right? But... Again, small groups, what do you do? You did it in homes. They met in the temple, big group. They met in homes, small group. We call them connect groups. So just plug in there. All right, that's where you're going to figure out your spiritual gift. God gave you a spiritual gift as a Christ follower. Figure out where to go. You're like, how am I going to find that in there? Every small group has at least one nonprofit ministry partner that they are supposed to be working with on a regular basis. You're like, well, my small group doesn't do that. Well, then get after them, okay? Go up to your teacher and go, how come our small group doesn't do that, all right? Because we'll help you do that. We'll help you with that. Let me give you a couple more, and then we're going to pray and be done. Um, let me just, let me just, I'll just leave you this one. All right. We say this all the time. Just say it to yourself quietly, or you can just say it where nobody can hear you. But just in your mind, let that roll over for a second and kind of leave it on the screen. I am loved, and I am sent. I just, do you believe that? First of all, do you believe I am loved? I am loved. I am loved by Almighty God. That's an awesome thing. With all the stuff that you see, I'm loved. I am loved. And by the way, you might be a non-Christian like, this is what I hate about churches. I hate this about churches. You're always talking about how to convert people. How do you do that? I can just lovingly say, listen, if we've been loved by God and God loves you and wants to forgive your sin and make you brand new, and we, how bad do we have to be to not want to be good at that. I mean, how callous do we have to be to say, well, whatever, just go to hell. Let's go to hell. Don't write me an email about that, all right? Don't, don't write me an email about that. But that's, that's the attitude. But no, we love you. God loves you. But you got to know I'm loved. I'm loved by the God of the universe. I'm loved so much. I was so bad he had to die for me and so loved he chose to die for me. Do you know that today? Second thing is I am sent. The gospel is not God loves you, period. It's God loves you, comma, and then wants to save you and then spread his glory through your being a trophy of God's grace, Ephesians chapter 1. 
People are like, uh, I don't even have anybody around me. Do you know how many people around you are just right there? If you don't know anything else, just listen for all the not statements. The not statements. You're like, what are you talking about? The not statements. Not statements are like, you know what? Um, it's not going well. You hear that at work? You know what? That's probably a clue. That's a person you might want to pray for. Or somebody says, I'm not from here. Guess what? By the way, great job over the last three weeks. I think I've met, I, I bet you just at the Arden campus, I bet you I've met 50 people that you're like, hey, this person moved in here from, and it usually is Florida, but sometimes it's from other places. You know, hey, they, welcome, glad you're here. Sometimes they'll say, I was not expecting that. It's not expecting that at all. And just pray for that. As a matter of fact, there ought to be one person you're praying for all the time. Praying for your one, praying for your one. It's amazing how many more conversations I have with the people when I have three or four people I'm praying for all the time. It's amazing how the conversations just tend to take place. That's what happens.